Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, that you strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Thank you, Julia, for reading today's passage. To be human is to face crises. A crisis is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger. It's often a time when a difficult decision has to be made. We're diagnosed with a terminal illness. We're in a state of shock, but we've been told that we need to decide on a path of treatment quickly. Our supervisor asks us to do something we consider to be unethical, and we have to make a decision. We really need the work, but the supervisor's request violates our conscience. We're in a long-term relationship that has gone toxic. The relationship is affecting our spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical health. How long should we wait for change? On our school campus, we're being pressured to conform to certain behaviors which we consider to be wrong. If we don't conform, our friends will exclude us. We endure difficulty, experience pain, and suffer from anxiety. Every one of us faces crises. The question is, how should we face crises? Sometimes we just want relief from the crises. And many spiritual gurus are eager eager to lead us down the path of escape. They encourage us to empty our minds and detach ourselves from life's drama. Peace, they say, is found through detachment. Sometimes we choose the path of escape on our own. We seek to ease the pain with drugs of choice. Books, sports, Netflix binging, movies, works, social media, gaming, recreational drugs. We choose to live in denial. Sometimes we face the crisis head on with all the emotional strength we can muster. But our anxiety levels just continue to increase. Internally, we are imploding because the weight of the crisis is too much for us to bear. An emotional breakdown looms. Obviously, in our attempts to deal with crises, we can go down different paths. What is Jesus' way? What would he say to us? In our scripture reading today, the first scene takes us to the end of the Passover meal. Jesus is in an upper room in Jerusalem at the table with his disciples. 
Jesus knows that by far the most significant crisis moment in his life is just around the corner. What does he say to his disciples? Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The double address, Simon, Simon, indicates the gravity of the situation. Simon Peter is the object of satanic attack. A spiritual battle rages for his soul. Despite his best intentions, his ability to sin runs deep. He must not be overconfident. He needs to wake up. Satan demanded to have you, Jesus says. The Greek word for you is plural. Satan has demanded to sift not just Simon Peter, but all of the disciples. Satan wants to sift all of them like wheat. The picture is of a a grain of wheat in a sieve where the head of the grain is taken apart. A similar English expression would be Satan wants to pick you to pieces. Satan wants to take you apart. Satan has no scruples. He attacks the disciples in their moment of weakness. Luke chapter 22 verse 3 reveals that Satan has already entered Judas. Now he wants to destroy Peter and all the other disciples as well. He seeks to inspire their desertion and crush their faith. But then comes an amazing word of hope. Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In this verse, the you now is singular. Only Peter is in view. Jesus knows that Peter is a prime target. He knows Peter will deny him in order to save his own skin. But he has prayed for Peter. He has prayed that Peter's faith will not fail. He foresees Peter's restoration. Jesus is stronger than Satan. Satan will fail to destroy Peter because Jesus intercedes for Peter. Jesus intercedes for his disciples, intercedes for us. This prayer of Jesus for Peter and the disciples should encourage us greatly. As the book of Hebrews teaches us, Jesus stands in the presence of God as our faithful and merciful advocate, interceding for us. We are never alone. Jesus carries our names within himself. We are in him. In the midst of our crisis, whatever it is, Jesus prays for us. Unaware of his weakness, Peter dismisses Jesus' warning. Luke 22, verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter believes he's ready to go to prison with Jesus and to die with him. He believes he will be faithful to Jesus right to the end. Was Peter acting out of insecure bravado, ignorance, pride, Was he trying to prove something to himself, to his peers, to Jesus? Jesus knows that Peter, as he warms himself a little later beside a charcoal fire, will cower in fear. He will deny even knowing Jesus. He will deny even a casual association with Jesus. In the privacy of a a safe, secluded room, in an upper room, Peter pledges complete loyalty to Jesus, even if everyone abandons him. But the public square and the presence of soldiers will change everything for Peter. Peter will fall to the temptation to conform. He will succumb to the pressure to not be singled out, to not be shamed, to not suffer death. Before we criticize Peter too much, let's remember how difficult it is to stand in the face of pressure. 
when the events of our day are leading in a certain direction. And if we don't go with the flow, we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of history, as they so often say. Pressure from peers, from family, and from society can sift a person's allegiance to Jesus. When we are pressured to conform, Satan seeks to grind us down. He seeks to tear us to pieces. But it is precisely in these moments that we must remember that Jesus prays for us. Before God the Father, the one who has all things in his hands, Jesus is with us. We can trust him fully. We can depend on him. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus knows Peter will fail, but he also knows that Peter will not fall away completely. When Peter turns back from his failure, he will strengthen the other disciples. Peter will repent for his failure and be restored by Jesus beside another charcoal fire over breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. These words remind us of God's grace. Even though he knows we will fail in our walk with him, he extends his hand toward you and me. His desire is to restore us. His will is to complete his work in us. He's the almighty God. We can trust him to carry us to the end. In this moment at the Passover meal, Peter is unaware of his weakness. But later, with much wisdom, he will write in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter was able to pen these words inspired by the Holy Spirit because Jesus prayed for him and restored him beside the Sea of Galilee. It was all by God's grace. Throughout the week, prior to his crucifixion, Jesus has been spending the nights at the Mount of Olives. On this night, in Luke 22, he again retreats to the Mount. Verse 39, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The disciples follow Jesus to the Mount of Olives. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus suffering most acutely as he awaits his crucifixion. Jesus urges his disciples to acknowledge their need for strengthening from their Father in heaven in order to not fall into temptation. The temptation in this moment will be to sleep, to to fail to support Jesus in prayer, and to deny Jesus when he is arrested. Jesus urges his disciples to pray to the Father. If they pray to the Father, they will remain alert. They will be prepared for the coming ordeal. They will be attuned to God's presence with them. They will remember that God knows all things and has power over all things. The way to faithfulness when facing hostility is a dependent spirit that communes with God. If the disciples do not pray, they will not stand a chance when Jesus is included among the criminals who deserve to be executed. The 2019 movie, A Hidden Life, 
tells a true story about an Austrian farmer during World War II. Franz, his wife, and three daughters live a simple life, farming land outside a small mountain village. It's an idyllic setting, but the war changes everything for the family. During the war, Franz is pressured to conform to the Nazi regime, but his conscience does not allow him. Something is wrong. The Nazi regime is wrong. He cannot join their war effort. He believes that if he swears allegiance to Hitler, he will compromise his relationship with Jesus. No one in the village understands him. His sacrifice means nothing, they say. Everyone in the village has sworn allegiance to Hitler. No one will notice his unnecessary sacrifice. The majority mock him. The village excludes his wife from the market. His children are shamed. If Franz just swears loyalty to Hitler, he'll be fine. His family will be fine. Not even the Catholic priest supports his decision. The priest says, God pays attention to our hearts, not our words. Just swear allegiance to Hitler. God knows your heart, Franz. As Franz tries to discern what he should do, he stops at a church where an artist is painting scenes of the life of Jesus. Beautiful scenes. And the artist turns to Franz and says, We painters create admirers of Jesus, not followers. This is a profound statement. Do we at Willingdon admire Jesus or do we follow him? We can admire Jesus for his wisdom, his teaching, and his self-giving sacrifice without truly following him. Do we admire him or do we follow his way? Wrestling with the knowledge that his decision will mean arrest and even death, Franz finds strength in his faith in God, his prayers, and his wife's love and support. He's taken to prison, first in Enz, Austria, and then in Berlin, Germany. After months of brutal incarceration, Franz is found guilty and sentenced to death. Despite many opportunities to sign the oath of allegiance to Hitler, and the promise of non-combatant military service, he continues to refuse. Franz is executed by the Nazis on August 9, 1943. Jesus does not call us to admire him as a wisdom teacher, a spiritual guru, or a miracle worker. He calls us to follow him, to remain faithful to him when relationships, job security, and government subsidies are threatened. He calls us to his way, his truth, his life, He calls us to pray and be strengthened as he intercedes for us. As we continue in our passage, Jesus withdraws from his disciples to be with the Father. Luke 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Jesus pulls some meters away to be with his Father. According to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Peter, James, and John are close to him. They can see him. They can hear him, feel his heart. Jesus prepares himself for his trial and death by turning to his father in humility. He kneels. Matthew and Mark, their gospels, relate that Jesus falls to his face. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. His words reveal the intensity of his emotion. Jesus faces the pain of this cup of suffering, shame, wrath, and death that is before him. Jesus knows the Father's plan. He knows that his death on a cross outside of Jerusalem is the plan from before the foundation of the world. He knows it is God's plan to rescue sinners like you and me. 
Yet his suffering is so intense, he asks for this cup to be removed. Can we pray openly and honestly before God as Jesus did? We must. Can we ask the Lord in prayer to take away our suffering? Yes, we can. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But we must remember the context of these words of Matthew 7, 7. These words of Jesus are given in the context of the disciples' prayer, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our asking must always be done according to the Father's will. We see Jesus suffering most acutely here in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his arrest, his trial and crucifixion. In Luke's passion narrative, this is a a watershed moment. In this moment of greatest spiritual, mental, and emotional agony, will Jesus walk away from his mission or will he submit to the will of the Father? After asking for the removal of the cup of suffering, almost in the same breath, Jesus says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In this moment of acute crisis, Jesus chooses to face the cross. Jesus submits trustingly to the Father's will. Some will say that we should not qualify our prayers with, may your will be done, Father. They say this is evidence of a lack of faith. We should just declare to God what we want. We should claim our healing. We should claim our deliverance. After all, Jesus says if we ask anything in his name, it will be given to us by his Father. Did Jesus lack faith when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done? There is no more faith-filled prayer than Jesus' prayer. Father, not my will, but yours be done. How so? Firstly, God is all-powerful, sovereign over all things. If he wills something, he will make it happen. Secondly, the Father's will is good. His plans are not only good, they're perfect. He longs for us to experience the joy of his good and perfect will. There is nothing better for us than his will. Thirdly, when we pray, Father, your will be done, we confess that we trust the Father's good will more than our own. It is a confession of absolute trust in God. In a crisis, what is most important is not how much we believe, but in whom we believe. What is critical is not how much faith we have, but in whom we deposit our trust, God. If we have faith in the Father, the size of a mustard seed, mountains can be moved. The way to victory in a moment of crisis is through earnest, submissive prayer to God. There is no more faithful prayer than, Father, not my will, but yours be done. My friend, Rick Wilson, who is on a journey with Jesus as he suffers with ALS, he often says, God, your way, your will, your timing. God, your way, your will in your timing. In a recent conversation, I asked him how his week had gone, and he replied very honestly, it has been a really hard week. I am really tired Sometimes when we're with a friend who is suffering, we're not sure what to say. I asked him, what has Jesus been saying to you during this most difficult week? He thought for a while and then answered, Jesus is asking me to focus on the healer, not the healing. Rick's statement reveals a seismic shift. 
When we pray, we are focused on God, his glory, his way, his will. We're not focused on our glory, our way, our will. We long to hear the words of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' words are spirit and life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. One word from Jesus changes everything. I don't watch many movies, but I watched another one a few weeks ago. In 2016, Martin Scorsese released a film entitled Silence, based on a novel written by Shusaku Endo. The movie narrates the experience of two young Jesuit priests from Portugal in the 17th century who go to Japan in search of their missing spiritual mentor. The story is set in a time when it was common for Japanese Christians to hide from persecution. Christianity was being suppressed in Japan after the Shimabara Rebellion in 1637. On their arrival in Japan, the two priests suffer greatly. They see see Japanese Christians being persecuted for their faith. Now, what I find most disturbing in the movie is that God is presented as being silent while his people suffer. People seek to be faithful, make sacrifices, even give their lives, but God says nothing. He's removed, almost indifferent. So today, in the midst of our political crises, moral crises, health crises, and relationship crises, is God silent? What does the Father do as Jesus faces his impending crucifixion and death? Luke 22, verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. The Father sends an angel to strengthen Jesus to face the coming ordeal. This is the biblical picture of God the Father. God the Father speaks. God the Father is present by his spirit. Jesus goes to the Father in prayer, not because the Father is indifferent and silent, but precisely because the Father hears and responds. Allow me to say a word about literary structure for a moment in order to highlight something we would not see normally. Luke uses a Greek literary structure called chiasmus in order to emphasize his main point in verses 40 to 46. Jesus commands his disciples to pray, withdraws to pray, kneels to pray, and then at the center of the chiasmus is strengthened by an angel. Then he returns to pray more earnestly, rises from prayer, and finally, again, Jesus commands his disciples to pray. The most important point is at the center of the chiasmus. What stands at the center of this literary structure? The sending of the angel. That's Luke's main point. The father hears Jesus' prayer and responds. God hears and responds concretely to the prayers of his son. In this moment of inst- spiritual battle, the angel comes and strengthens Jesus. Jesus' agony is so intense it causes a physical reaction. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Sweat drips like clotted blood. Extreme anguish or physical strain can cause one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing sweat and blood. Jesus is experiencing intense emotional and physical trauma, but he's being strengthened by an angel for what is before him. 
God stands beside those who suffer in his name. This is a major theme in Scripture. Jesus does not suffer alone. The Father comes to his aid. Jesus' disciples will not suffer alone. He will come to their aid. We do not suffer alone. At our recent prayer summit, our verse for reflection was 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God not only strengthens those who pray, he's actively looking for people to strengthen. This is what he wants to do. I recently had a conversation with a friend who had suffered abuse. Where was God in that abusive situation? His answer, God carried me, sustained me, pulled me out, saved me, and restored me. He was with me from beginning to end. God is with us. Jesus prays to the Father because he trusts his Father. He has his eyes on the Father. He is ready to do the Father's will for the Father's glory. And the Father responds. He does not sit in silence. Verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus' words express an expectation and a disappointment. He had asked his disciples to come alongside him in his hour of suffering. He expected them to be praying with him, but he found them sleeping. It had been a long day. They had been pushing hard all week. They were emotionally and physically exhausted. In Matthew and Mark's Gospels, Jesus says to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? The disciples could not join him in prayer for one measly hour? Jesus expresses his longing for supportive friendship. There is something for us to see in the example of Jesus. We are not meant to face difficulties, challenges, or crises alone. Even Jesus wanted his disciples to support him in his crisis. We are called to carry burdens for one another, praying for one another. It's an act of love. Verse 46 here repeats what we read in verse 40, a warning. Satan is lurking. Temptation is around the corner. Indeed, while Jesus is still speaking, Judas arrives with a crowd carrying clubs and swords. Preparation time is over. Jesus is ready to face his darkest hour. The disciples have been sleeping. They're unprepared. They will all deny their Lord and run. It appears to be hopeless. Is there hope for them? Jesus has been praying. Jesus will die for them. Jesus will save them. He will restore them. He will complete the work he has begun in their lives. And this is our sure hope as well. What is the Jesus way to face crises? We remember that Jesus intercedes for us. We live a life of prayer. Because crisis is always around the corner. We yield our will to the fathers. We know he hears us and will respond and strengthen us. We invite our friends in Christ to support us in prayer. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way to respond to crisis. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus Jesus, we thank you that you went to the Father in prayer, in your moment of agony, and you said, not my will, but yours be done. 
And because you submitted to the Father's will, you were obedient right to the cross and you died for us. You took our sin upon yourself. And so if we are here today as your disciples, it is all by your grace. Father, you have drawn us to yourself by your Spirit. You have enabled us to put our faith in Jesus. And now we are your children. And so, Lord, as we go through difficult situations, as we face crises, Father, may we follow the example of Jesus. May we put ourselves in your presence and pray and submit to your will and trust you to strengthen us. And may our brothers and sisters come around us. May we pray for one another. Lord, may your will be done in our lives because your will, it's, it's good, it's perfect. Lord, may your will be done. For your glory we pray. And thank you, Jesus, that you are interceding for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to leave a few questions for your reflection. God bless you.